0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 3rd of March 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme, we have the latest as Russian forces gain the upper hand in southern Ukraine.
1: The fall of Kherson is actually quite significant because of its proximity to the illegally annexed Crimea.
0: Also ahead, The Hague has opened a war crimes probe into the invasion and Russian and Belarusian athletes are thrown out of the Paralympics in Beijing. In
2: order to preserve the integrity of these games and the safety of
0: all participants,
2: we have decided to refuse the athlete entries from RPC
0: and NPC Belarus. That's all ahead here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. Russian forces have taken control of Kherson in the south of Ukraine. It's the first major city to fall under Moscow's control since the start of the conflict a week ago and suggests that Russia's army is starting to gain the upper hand as it continues its advance from the east, north and south. This is what the Ukrainian defence analyst, Lada Roslicky, had tell our sister programme, The Globalist, a little earlier today.
1: The fall of Kherson is actually quite significant because of its proximity to the illegally annexed Crimea peninsula and also gives an outlet to uh, more control over the water it also blocks off more of ukrainian shorelines with the black sea which the russian federation clearly wants to either take over the entire country or create that ruski Mir map that we've been watching but only for the last eight years so basically cut off ukraine from the seas cut it off from all of the energy sources on the continental shop etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's a very bad bad situation here That was the Ukrainian defence analyst, Lada
0: Ruslicky. Well, let's bring in our friend Stephen Diel. Stephen's a Russia analyst who covered the collapse of the Soviet Union for the BBC and has been charting these extraordinary times for us uh, across all of our programmes over the last week or so. Um, Well, Stephen, just first up, give us a a quick reaction, of course, to the the scenario that Lada was talking about there, and maybe just this big picture. We're seeing attacks intensifying on a number of key cities. Give us a bit of a, a bird's eye view as you see it. The, the, the one thing that's been
3: clear is that it's in the south that um, Russia has made the most gains generally territorially. And now, um, as we know, they've seized the, f- the first city they've seized, Kherson. Um, it's it's given me also something of a eureka moment and um, cursing myself for being so slow to pick this up. After they seized Crimea in 2014, one of the first things that President Putin did was order the building of a bridge, a, la- a bridge to connect the Russian territory with Crimea. Um, rather foolishly, I would say, myself, of myself, that I saw this as a way of making sure that um, that supplies could get in. Whereas, of course, now I should have been thinking more widely, and it's now been obvious, this was all about military. This was to ensure that, and this also, therefore, it suggests that this is actually something that Putin has not been planning for weeks or months. He's been planning for years. Building that bridge to Crimea meant that he could put as much military equipment as he wanted into Crimea. And also, as the conflict has gone on, it's a very easy way for him to keep reinforcing the forces. So no wonder they've done so well in the south because they've got so many forces there and they can keep bringing them in. Um, So uh, it's it's well worth looking at the map. I know it's a little difficult on radio, but um, when you see that the only port that really is going to be accessible for Ukraine is Odessa, um, as of yet... Uh, Kherson, which is towards Odessa from Crimea, it's, it's to the west of Crimea, northwest, um, th- that's been seized. The, the concentration, though, seems to have been in the other direction, mainly, particularly towards the city of Mariupol, which is under bombardment, as we know. I think once Mariupol goes, uh, then they, they join up. The, the Donbas area that they already held with Crimea, which takes out all of that southern coast uh, for Ukraine. And I fear me that then they will start heading west and aim at Odessa, which as, uh, as Lada mentioned in, her, uh, in the clip we played, that cuts off all Ukrainian ports so they have no sea access at all.
0: Well, yeah, and this is what I was going to ask you. It's very clear that it's a bid to cut off Ukrainian forces from the sea and it also further uh, sort of isolates or puts additional pressures on those forces who are in the uh, east of the country. Uh, And I guess that must be a fear now that there is this encircling. We see one from the north looking towards Kiev, which we'll come to in a moment, but also there's a clear bid to isolate, uh, detach those eastern forces. And a lot of the battle-hardened Ukrainian forces are in that area aren't they?
3: That's right the the, the 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 cream of the Ukrainian armed forces have been in the east because of course for the last eight years that's where the threat has been the, um, there has been fighting from time to time in the Luhansk and uh, Donetsk areas um, and, and along the, the the border which has shifted a little bit from time to time um, and uh, I think not surprisingly the Ukraine saw that as the the area of most threat in the last weeks and months before the the attack started um, I, I, for one, was I expected after Putin recognized the the so-called independence of the so-called Luhansk and Donetsk regions that the attack would come there. um, uh, And maybe it was wishful thinking, but I didn't hope I hoped and I didn't think that he would attack on three sides at once from the north, Mm. from the south and from the east. But of course, he has. Um, But that's where the major gains have been. And I think that. Uniting Crimea with the, with the Donbass was always one of
0: his major objectives. Well, let's talk a little bit about that uh, scenario in the north of the country. This third front, as you've described it, Kiev remains in in government control. There is this extraordinary Russian convoy, but it remains some distance away it's rather difficult to make assessments I appreciate from from range and with the different information we get from different sources but what's your impression of the progress or lack of certainly in terms of that uh, major convoy, whatever, 40 miles in length as it reputedly uh, is
3: Yeah, I, I think this is a very good indication actually of one of Putin's miscalculations and that is that um, his army is not invincible, his soldiers are not 10 feet tall um, and I think he expected them just to, to sweep in, and also, of course, the Ukrainian resistance has been much stronger. That's another of his miscalculations, I think much stronger than he expected. Um, Having been following the Russian army, and indeed I was specifically a military analyst back in the 1980s when the Soviet army was in Afghanistan, It doesn't surprise me. Um, They've they've never been 10 feet tall. And because it is still largely a conscript army, you've got 19-year-old lads who may not even realise still that they're in Ukraine. They may think they're still on exercise in Belarus. It's quite possible the two places, because of the Soviet past, look somewhat similar, the blocks of flats and so on. Um, But they will be thinking... It's of themselves. You know, why, why are we doing this? You know, why, um, you know, we order, orders is orders. We've 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 gone in, um, but you know, they don't particularly want to fight against Ukrainians, particularly when suddenly the Ukrainians are fighting back, and also, of course, the what, something again we saw very much in Afghanistan is that the equipment breaks down, and even mm-hmm. with the new super weapons that um, Putin undoubtedly has and hasn't as yet deployed uh, on the whole. Um, tanks, BMPs, which is the, the, the infantry fighting vehicle, they break down. Some of them are actually quite old, some of them very old, uh, some of them go back to Soviet times and, and they do break down and it would appear that because he expected a, a swift um, a, 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 like a blitzkrieg attack, using actually a, a, a phrase that's come up again and again in Russian history, 1905 J- Russo-Japanese War, the Chechen War, the first one in 1994, let us have a, a small victorious war um, and and this is what I think the thinking was, and it's not because the, the the logistics aren't aren't there. It would appear that's why it seems this column's broken down because soldiers need to be fed, um,
0: military equipment needs fuel to keep it going. And they don't seem to have got that right. Um, Steve, we're going to talk about the ICC investigation in just a moment. I want to ask you one final point, though, just in the big picture. Uh, Foreign ministers talked about, you know, well, a third world war would be nuclear. um, But you know, we're not we're not thinking about that. And a lot of people have talked about Putin's language around uh, his nuclear arsenal, um, this additional extra state of, of readiness that he instigated. There are quite a number of people who are genuinely fearful in a way that, I mean, possibly we go back to 62, 63 for this kind of urgency and genuine fear all around the world about what any kind of nuclear deployment could look like. What, what's your sense on that? You've mentioned you know, you've tracked so many of these nuances over a few, a few decades now. Are those kinds of fears, well, are they well founded in your view?
3: They're They're understandable. Um, when anyone starts, anyone who ha- has access to a nuclear button starts talking about um, putting his f- nuclear forces on red alert, as it were, then that's, um, yes, of course, it's worrying. But um, what Putin said on Sunday, which is when he said, I'm, I'm putting them h- on high alert, um, that actually is a standard operating procedure for the Russian and before it, the Soviet army. Um, so, Actually, that is—it was to be expected. Um, yes, he's—he's he's using the rhetoric, he's using the language, the propaganda to try and scare the West. Um, but it would have been very odd if he hadn't done that uh, because of the way that the the, the Soviet military mind—and a lot of it is still a Soviet military mind—and the modern
0: Russian military mind works. And are there any? diplomatic back channels, I, you know, could, could, could we look for reassurance that, you know, somebody in the US military and somebody, their counterparts in the Russian service are having lines of dialogue, you know, the famous old red phones from the, the 60s and 70s. Is that, is that um, misplaced hope that those lines remain open?
3: I fear me they don't. Um, I was at an event earlier this week with um, some very senior people who know about these things and from the, it was an American who joined the conversation online and they said that, that unfortunately
0: these back channels don't exist anymore. So that is rather worrying. Well, let's move on. As I mentioned, the International Criminal Court has launched an investigation into Russia's invasion of Ukraine after an unprecedented number of countries backed the move. The ICC's chief prosecutor, Karim Khan, said he would begin work as rapidly as possible. Well, let's get more on this now with regular Monocle contributor Phil Clark. Phil's a professor of international politics at SOAS, University of London, and has written a number of books on the International Criminal Court and frequently uh, shares his insights with us here on Monocle 24. Good afternoon to you, Phil. Thanks for um, joining us on the programme. Um, what's the most telling here? The, the pace at which this has happened? The fact that there were those 39 nations uh, that, that made the call? What, what do you find most striking?
2: I think that is the most striking aspect of this development is that you have 39 states uh, that have referred uh, the situation of Ukraine to the court. It's the first time we've seen uh, such a number of, of states uh, come in behind uh, the ICC and, and, and try to galvanize uh, the, the ICC to, to deal with a situation. So I, th- I think that's the, the most significant thing here. It's it's a, a, a very coordinated message by a, a large number of, of, of international states. And it, and it shows their, their kind of belief in the ICC, if, if you like. But but I think the more important issue is uh, that I, I think it's unlikely we'll see the ICC really affect uh, the conflict on the ground. I, I don't think that Russia at all will be rattled uh, by the ICC opening uh, I- investigations. Um, uh, I also don't think we're likely ever to see uh, Russian suspects in the dock. And I, and, I, and I think Russia looks at the court's track record and realizes that uh, this is a court that has never in any context, being able to get a a sitting member of government or a sitting senior member of a military uh, to to actually stand trial in the Hague. So this is a big moment for the court. It shows that there is uh, international support for using the ICC in these kind of situations. But but I don't think that's going to have much impact in in terms of the, the violence that's ensuing in Ukraine at the moment.
0: Well, Phil, does it follow from that then that other details here which might at first look uh, seem interesting, the fact that, you know, the investigation explicitly refers back as far as November 2013, uh, predating even the annexation of Crimea, are those details likewise kind of not, uh, unlikely to, to, to shape the narrative? Because as you say, the prospects of Putin or anyone else actually uh, being hauled before the court in Hague seems yeah somewhat remote.
2: I I think that's right. Uh, And and I think that uh, listening to the ICC. Prosecutor this morning, he, he reminded us that the court has had this preliminary investigation into Russian aggression uh, on the territory of Ukraine for the last six or seven years, and that clearly hasn't shaped uh, Putin's decision making in, in the last week or two. Um, I think, even more importantly, that the ICC has had open investigations into Russian aggression in Georgia uh, going back to 2009. That's a, a 12 or 13 year old uh, investigation, which basically has gone no nowhere. And I think it points to the real weaknesses of the ICC in, in these kinds of contexts. Um, it's an international court with very limited staff, uh, very few investigators, and those investigators don't tend to have very specific expertise on the particular places where they investigate crimes. They get parachuted into these very foreign terrains. They often fumble around looking for the kind of evidence that they could use to build criminal cases, and certainly in the case of uh, Georgia, we've seen uh, that, that evidence uh, so weak that, that that really no momentum has happened there at all. And Putin knows that. He knows that this has been a floundering court um, that has struggled in, in these previous cases that have involved uh, Russia. And clearly that didn't uh, give him any pause for thought when it came to the launching this uh, this recent invasion in Ukraine.
0: Well, Phil, at the risk of asking you a kind of <laughs> a question that would require a whole program to, to, to get into, you know, so much discussion about challenge to the very rules-based order that governs the way international diplomacy relations between countries work. Is the ICC then, we've had the conversation about NATO also, even despite what we're seeing, is the ICC not fit for purpose? Or do we have to just take a step back and say, look, it's very good at doing the things it does well. And we just have to be more sanguine about its inability uh, to reshape these kinds of dynamics.
2: I I do. I I think we have to be much more realistic about what the ICC can and and can't do. I mean, if we look at the 20 years of the ICC in Africa, which is where almost all of its cases have been to date, uh, the court's been able to deal with a a few fairly junior um, rebel leaders, um, but never anybody in a a significant position of power, certainly nobody with a a senior position inside a government. Um, And and so the court has some track record of dealing with these, these fairly weak characters, but it's It's not a court that at the moment is fit for purpose for certainly dealing with anybody of the seniority of Putin. So I I think we really have to see uh, the ICC going into Ukraine as a symbolic moment. Um, It's important for the court because the court was hemorrhaging a lot of support, even amongst the European states that have uh, historically been. Its, its significant supporters. So it suggests that those Western countries still think the ICC is useful for them. This is symbolically important for, for the ICC's own community of supporters, if you like. But but I think that this is uh, going to be yet another example of the ICC stumbling into a situation that it, it doesn't know a huge amount about and, and certainly not having any major impact on the ground. So it, I think we do need to be much more realistic about the, the role of the ICC in that sense.
0: Phil, thank you. Always good to hear from you. That was our friend Phil Clark, a professor of international politics at SOAS University of London. Um, and Stephen, I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, what Phil mentioned there about, you know, symbolic importance. We're going to reflect a little later in the program about some other manifestations of that. But we are seeing that these symbolic gestures, even if that is all they are. They do matter. They may not reshape the whole narrative. They may not even uh, prompt Putin to to pause for thought. But they they have a a heft. They can have a resonance that goes beyond the, 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 the sort of the function that they that they prompt. Right.
3: You're absolutely right. Um, We've seen uh, demonstrations around the world, people uh, around the world simply going out, joining demonstrations um, against Putin, against the war in support of Ukraine Um, and Ukrainians that uh, I've been in touch with uh, say, look... You know, we know you're a long way away, but just doing something like that actually counts. It, mm-hmm. We feel there is a certain moral support. So, so both at that level of just ordinary people who um, many of us, you know, feel helpless. There's what, what can we do? That really does count. It, it, we, we, I've been told that, and. I think, actually, uh, I hear what Phil is saying, and he, you know, he, of course, he, he's an expert in the, in the field. Um, but the fact that the ICC has opened and, uh, you know, is looking into possible war crimes, the flow of information into Russia at the moment is rather broken. Um, the Russian authorities are trying to clamp down on uh, on social media as much as they can. But the more that these get into Russia, that actually thinking russian people say we're being accused of war crimes now um where you know the un has voted against us the 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 more that that the western message gets through to them look what you're doing is is criminal quite frankly um it's not going to foment a revolt on the streets of moscow or in in russia but it, it 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 does it's it's a drip drip effect and who knows what eventually might come out of that
0: Well, let's reflect on another aspect that's perhaps not dissimilar in its own way. Russian and Belarusian athletes have been banned from the Winter Paralympics in Beijing. The International Paralympic Committee were initially heavily criticised for saying it would allow athletes to compete as neutrals under the uh, Olympic Committee flag. Um, Let's bring in China Dialogues' Isabel Hilton for more on this. Regular listeners will know Isabel's been keeping a very close eye on the Winter Games uh, for Monocle 24. Good afternoon to you, Isabel. Um, This is the the, the, the right decision decision that's potentially been uh, arrived at in the wrong way and with the wrong timing, right?
4: Well, yes, it's hard to disagree with that. And I think that um, I think the decision may well have been delayed by Chinese hostility. Uh, The the Chinese press are uh, making uh, much of the opening ceremony of the Paralympics, uh, which is which is coming up tomorrow, but they haven't actually mentioned that uh, the Russian and Belarus athletes will no longer be competing. So I think China's not particularly pleased about this. Uh, I think they would rather go on spreading the platitudes about peace and love, which are very again very high in the uh, in the official propaganda.
0: Well, yeah. And just to that point, you know, Stephen's talked about the relative unanimity on the world stage, pronouncements from the UN and others. Um, obviously, China remains an outlier. Can you give us a sense as well of, I don't know how to put this other than fairly crudely, how, how bothered Beijing remains about this invasion? One certainly gets a sense that they would not have felt the Paralympics was an event uh, that uh, should have been viewed in an explicitly political context.
4: Well, no, again, much, much made of uh, keeping politics out of sport. But um, there are increasingly credible questions around how much China knew and whether Xi Jinping in that notorious meeting now between Xi Jinping and Putin, in which they issued their 5000 word declaration of eternal friendship. How much did Xi Jinping know at that point? Uh, Did he say to Putin, don't do it in uh, while the Olympics are on, because remember, this was launched what two days after the Olympics mm. ended. Uh, Russia was able to move its troops away from the Chinese border and send them down to use them in this invasion. Uh, so certainly a high degree of trust. The question is how big a degree of complicity uh, has has taken place and therefore how much credibility one should give to China's professions of peace.
0: Well, and I appreciate I'm asking you to speculate fairly fairly extensively here as well, but what's your hunch on that? I mean, is it expedient in some respects for Beijing to to strike a level of active complicity or is it kind of expedient to say very little and sort of look the other way? Do do you have any sense of what that um, agreement or discussion or, you know, reading the room nuance might have looked
4: like? It's it is quite difficult, but it's very look if if China didn't know that this invasion was imminent and what it was going to be like, then, you know, China was deceived by Putin, which is a massive loss of face for Xi Jinping. If they did know and failed to use their influence to stop it then, you know, they're complicit. And after all, the United States, as we now know, has been sharing intelligence with China and asking China to put pressure on on Russia not to do this for months. Um, China publicly mocked that intelligence, said the invasion wasn't going to happen and interestingly made no provision for the evacuation of 6,000 Chinese citizens from the Ukraine at all unlike the 30,000 citizens that they promptly evacuated from Libya over the course of 12 days in 2011. Mm -hmm. So there are very, very mixed signals here. But China and Russia share a world view, which is that the West is in decline and it is the moment for for authentic democracies, as they would put it, China and Russia, to take the lead in the world. It may be that China is quietly... um, Benefiting from the from testing out the West's resolve in the face of something quite as blatant as and damaging as this, but in the end, it doesn't do China's image very much good. And China has enormous um, economic interests in Ukraine. They've, they're currently building, or were until interrupted by war, uh, Kiev's underground line. You know the un, you know its metro line. They're, they've rebuilt Black Sea ports. This is this is not a trivial relationship with Ukraine. So China is trying to trying to have it both ways, trying to say, you know, our hands are clean, we will play the honest broker. Oh, and by the way, this conflict is the West's fault. You know, the expansion of NATO triggered these tensions and, and we must respect the security interests of all sides. Well, clearly they're not respecting the security interests of the Ukraine uh, because they have yet to condemn this action. So it's, Frankly, not something. This is not a position that is enhancing China's credibility in the world.
0: Uh, Isabel, always great to hear from you. Thanks for that. That was China Dialogues. Isabel Hilton, um, Stephen Dale, who's still with me. Um, what, what do you make of that? That dynamic is, of course, really, really uh, fascinating. But I, I guess if we take a step back. Is is sport? Is an event like this? You've already talked about the importance of, of symbolic gestures, even if they are only that. Is it the right forum uh, to try and register dissent, uh, criticism, to involve athletes? You know, we said some of these people are apolitical or maybe anti-Putin almost. Is it right to put them into the the sort of the crucible of the the, the global dynamics on this?
3: There are two very different arguments in uh, in favour and against, um, because by doing this, some Russians will say, well, you know, look, that um, just shows how the West hates us. And, you know, we therefore, you know, we need to think again about Russia. But there are other Russians who say, ha, well, that's, you know, we don't care. We don't need the West, which is very much the Putin line. Um, you don't like us. We don't care. Um, and so it... it I, th- I think it's inevitable to be honest I mean the only thing I, the, th- the worst thing I think about it is the way that the IOC has handled this just as the way that um, UEFA and FIFA earlier in the week said oh, well Russian football teams can play um, but we won't call them Russia and then the next day I had to say actually we're kicking them out of the World Cup um, and the women's Euro- Euros this this, uh, this summer um, th- they have shown weakness all along I think one of the biggest examples just how weak and possibly corrupt the football bodies have been was that They've, they've reached this decision after looking stupid for 24 hours, reasonably quickly. But why was Russia allowed to host the 2018 World Cup? The attack on Ukraine came in 2014. That was the time when FIFA could have stepped down and said, actually, you know, we're not. What if Ukraine had qualified? You know, were they going to expect to go and play in Russia when there's a war going on in their country already? Um, that was the time when uh, and that was that was one of the weaknesses that um, might have led to uh, has certainly paid into this, you know, and it sounds it may sound ridiculous, oh if russia didn't have the world cup I'm not saying if Russia didn't have the world cup they, there wouldn't have been an invasion of Ukraine now, but it would have had Russia thinking differently. R- the West was so weak in its response after two thousand and fourteen that was the time for the big sanctions and really putting the foot down and saying, "Look, you know you cannot behave like this in the twenty first century and not." doing taking action then and allowing the world cup that all played into putin thinking well i can you know i can get away with anything the, um, putin may not be a classic leninist but he does act according to one of lenin's principles which was you attack with a bayonet and if you come up against something soft you keep pushing and if you come up against steel you stop and pull back and putin if he'd had come up against more steel from the west he would have stopped and pulled
0: back Uh, Stephen, this prompts me to ask you one further question, which is about another sort of corollary uh, example of the Western response, which is looking at uh, specific economic sanctions or targeting of the sort of oligarch class. And obviously here in London, there's a particular fascination with uh, the owner of Chelsea Football Club, Roman Abramovich, and and others like him. Again, this seems to divide opinion. It's either an effective way, again, to register some maybe symbolic blows to Putin and his acolytes. But many say, look, you're targeting the wrong people and ultimately Putin won't be bothered. And also look at the facility with which some of these oligarchs managed to extricate their funds from one market and put it in another. You know, the Gulf states, which were tellingly one of very few uh, to sort of stick with, with, with China in terms of the UN vote and so forth. Is it the right way to go about it. There are not that many weapons at the West disposal. Is targeting this class of individuals a good idea in your view?
3: I think it is a good idea, but it's it's come much too late. Um, You know, this is shutting numerous stable doors after herds of horses have bolted. Um, uh, the, the, The 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 dirty money that's flowed into the Russian uh, uh, from Russia and not just only from Russia but but we're talking about Russia here into the city of London um, we're talking billions Um, and it's been known about there's um, uh, I translated a book it it is not because of the translation but because the book itself is excellent Um, The Return of the Russian Leviathan is the English translation by Sergei Medvedev and that was published in uh, 2019 Um, and uh, in that, that for example there's a chapter about uh, Igor Shuvalov. Now Shuvalov is someone very close to to Putin. He paid twenty million pounds. That's an awful lot of money for an apartment in the old MI five building on Whitehall. He has a private jet that he flies his dogs around the world to uh, to dog shows. This is a state functionary. State functionaries don't earn that sort of money. But, you know, it's been known, it's been out there. This is not some great revelation that's suddenly come to light. Um, More recently, and I hope that um, the the powers that be are looking at this, um, Alexei Navalny's team are still putting out some very interesting videos on YouTube and one of the latest ones—it's an 18-minute video—and it actually names names and names sums of money, uh, looking at London of of, of the, the the dirty Russian money that's in London. Um, uh, I, I suggest that certain politicians should watch this uh, and and actually take action. You know, it's this is this is what's so frustrating—is it's it's been so open. It's not all just behind the scenes, and it's it's been allowed to go on because um, certain people. Um, lawyers bankers accountants um, state agents some, um, some party fundraisers uh, some party fundraisers indeed have have benefited from this and so they've turned a blind eye to it it's been the worst example of due diligence that, that businesses could have shown could I also just come back to the China question that uh, Isabel was talking about um, and this again is guesswork as you know she was saying we don't have sort of hotlines to um to the powers that be, I would I would be very very surprised if Putin in that conversation at the start of the Olympics had told Xi that he was going to uh, that he was going to invade Ukraine. They may pretend to be great great friends, and uh, Xi sort of described him uh, last year as being my best friend Vladimir Putin. Um, that's just words. They, neither of them have close friends like that. Putin doesn't have close friends. He doesn't trust anyone. He would not have trusted China enough. I am convinced to to tell him what he was actually going to do ahead of time. So I think that probably China genuinely has been uh, surprised, maybe not as shocked as the rest of us because of that kind of regime, but um, I think they would have been very surprised at at the way it happened. And I think it was very telling that um, at the UN Security Council that China abstained. It didn't vote against Russia, that's true, but it did abstain from a vote condemning Russia. Mm. Um, uh, And I think that 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 is very significant.
0: Stephen, it's always a great pleasure uh, to have you with us uh, on the programme. That was our friend Stephen Diel joining us here on The Briefing on Monocle 24.
2: The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those left untold.
3: If actually though you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth across the board is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system.
2: Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience.
1: In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them.
2: The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, Right here on Monocle 24.
0: You're listening to The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. Finally on the programme, at the risk of throwing in a quite profound understatement, there hasn't been much to cheer or to cheer us in the news over the past week. But we've decided to find a little light amidst the shade. Monocle senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco surely the man to do exactly that he's here it's the return this week of the global countdown fernando where are we going to go and what are we going to find there
5: well Tom, today I decided to go to Colombia which musically speaking I think is a very interesting one because I think Puerto Rico and Colombia, they dominate kind of the Latin American music scene there's so many local artists from Colombia doing so well so I decided what are they listening actually um, um, And is there a bit of uh, sunshine sound? Is that the kind of vibes we're going to be getting into? Lots of sunshine and I, th- and I think you said Tom, we're living in a very difficult time but you know, I think people would appreciate as well to listen to some music uh, and I and that's why we are here with the Global Countdown. We'll see
0: how appreciative they may be. <laughs> Maybe or may you're not, not gonna like hear, the song hear the tracks. Um, <laughs> but let's start, as we always do, Fernando uh, number five. Number five, we have Ryan Castro with
5: Mujeriego. Let's have a listen. <laughs>
0: The oh. A sudden burst of energy. It was quite moody. And quite moody it... at the beginning, but I, th- I think the track is
5: quite upbeat in the end. And Mujeriego is a womanizer. So, I mean, the track is very simple. Though, and I think, you know, it's kind of reggaeton vibes, Urbano music. It's about, you know, drinking, run, and having some fun. And he says in the song, I became a womanizer, forgive me, sir. I am a womanizer, I'm not denying it. Uh, so, you know, that that's the vibe. And Ryan Castro is interesting because he's a rising star in the Colombia music scene. He's really... Because you have so many big... Up- Colombian artists, Maluma, J Balvin, Carol G. I mean, I think he might kind of reach that level. We might hear more from Ryan actually here on the top five.
0: It's exciting when you can pick out those stars who might have that real breakthrough uh, crossover appeal. Particularly, I'm sure they always have eyes on the US market, Fernando, which is of such course. an important one. In um, about- Europe as well. Ryan Castro, in fact, he's
5: in Europe at the moment. He's doing go. a little
0: tour. So, Okay, check him out. Uh, find the details. I don't know where he's playing. I'm sure you probably do know, don't you, Fernando? Madrid, Paris, everywhere. All around. Um, who's at number four? Number four.
5: Number four, I am pretty sure you know this track, Tong, and shall we have a listen? I'm not gonna review which Tongue. track is it. Let's have a listen. Number four.
2: My power would grow like
1: the grapes that thrive on the vine. On his way. Told me that the man of my dreams would be just out of
0: Up to you. You know that, right, Tom? But remind our <laughs> of eager course.
5: listeners. This is We Don't Talk About Bruno from uh, the Disney movie Encanto, which, funnily enough, talks about the Madrugal family who lives in the mountains of Colombia. It's very beautiful. Very beautiful. I haven't seen the film, but I've oh, heard it's the soundtrack. Good him, it's very good. But definitely on my list, Tom. And it's interesting because I was looking, I mean, are there any Colombians involved? And I think the main character, uh, the voice is by Carolina Gaitan. She's a Colombian pop star. She was on The X Factor in Colombia. Uh, she also did a few soap operas as well, so she does have kind of a, an acting career. I really like, and can you believe, Tom, that this is going to be one of the most successful Disney songs ever? More than Let It Go uh, from, from the Wait Frozen film. Wait a minute. Film. More yes. than Let It Go. It, it's It's still number one in the US. It's been there for a few weeks. It's been such a crazy phenomenon because, and, and, and I think Encanto was kind of a slow burner. I think when it was mm. out, you know, people liked it, but you know, the soundtrack didn't go to number one at the same spot.
0: But after a few months, we're still talking about Bruno. Uh, Got the joke? (laughs) I'm still, it's very good, Fernando. I'm still having to, having to. It was a pleasure to watch Encanto. Certainly the first time, maybe the second time third time. Starting to great, now I'm up into double figures. Especially now, it's even on the global countdown. you know. Like, there's no escape from it. It's probably be playing when I get home to my house. Let's
5: move on, on that basis, to number three. We're heading to Medellin now, uh, which in fact, I have to talk about Medellin. Even though it's not the biggest city in Colombia, I think it's one of the most musical ones. So many of their top artists come from that city. So there's a very strong music scene there. So let's have a listen from Blast. He is from, Colom- from Medellin and Ryan Castro is back. And this is a remix of a track called TV, let's have a listen. Andan sueltas y un tro de amigas que en los fines se topan. Toman champaña y lo mezclan con bota. El polvo rosa le sube la nota y nos vemos en el after. Mira cómo lo mueven. Son las
2: pelis que no sale hier.
5: It do you like that p- p- one?
0: You're swaying around yes. there, Fernando, in your seat. I,
5: I, I think this this kind of music makes me dance a little bit, and you know I do speak a little bit of Spanish though, And the lyrics, I mean, it's again this time they're not drinking rum; they're drinking champagne with a little bit of pot. You know, so yeah, I mean that's what they're doing in the in this song. But and Blast is so young, and he, apparently he's quite religious as well, okay. and that's why he chose the name. Blessed uh, without the
0: e, so it's b l e s s d. So quite religious, but maybe not as, as robust on his spellings <laughs> exactly, and not robust and maybe uh religious. And I wonder, is there an ecclesiastical note uh to the song that's at number two? Because it's from monastery. I'm thinking of maybe some simple human voice, a liturgical number,
5: perhaps <laughs> that's very confusing, actually. Because indeed, our next track is called Monastery, and and again. Talking to the lyrics, I don't think it's really religious in a way because they're talking about bikinis and then monastery. I need to understand kind of this connection very <laughs> Some well. Some deeper
0: research yes. required for me. And,
5: and guess who's back? It's Ryan Castro again, but with another musician, uh, Fade. Let's have a listen to Monastery and then I'll tell you actually what the lyrics are talking about. Comiendo desacherry, de eso allá abajito te sabe a blueberry. Cuando yo te quito la combi de Bulberi Tengo un par de blones y una de Don Perry
2: Oh baby que tú tienes
5: The beat always drops in such a it's way. It's pretty this, good, isn't it? It makes us it's move. It's very irresistible. You were moving, actually. Yeah, I understand. know. You
0: were surprised by that, right? But,
5: but again, the track, there's a lot of name dropping here. I, I was uh, describing the brands who were name dropped. Don Perignon, Burberry, Valentino, Moschino, Ducati, Poole Parties. And yeah, And uh, it is a song about sex, so there's nothing related to, to Monastery. So I am a little bit intrigued why they chose this title, in a way. Maybe it's
0: ironic or something, Fernando. Uh, Ryan... Three in the top five. This guy's everywhere. He is everywhere, but he's not a number one. Oh, okay. Who and is at the top of the tree
5: then? We have a Do It. And, and, and it's interesting because they say the G's have united. And I say the G's because it, this song is by Carol G, a huge Colombian star, and Becky G from the US. So all the G's are in the song. Is Kenny G involved? Kenny G is not there. I think you could do a remix of that song. It's kind of a, a diss track, okay. you know, so it's quite punchy. It's a bit, a bit in a way. spicy, is it? Very spicy. Let's have a listen. Becky Giancaro G with mummy and G with yeah, it's very toxic. Don't be, you know, fooled by the kind of slightly sunny beats. They're saying, don't call me again. I even throw away my cell phone. You're so toxic. I don't want to hear you anymore. You didn't even leave a trace in my life. So it's proper drama in a way. So, and I was reading apparently the songs also about sisterhood in a way. So maybe they were both been down to had problems in their relationships but they're still united singing together and dissing their
0: former boyfriends. Uh, do you think a bit of Kenny G's saxophone noodling could... I don't know. Elevate that to another level. What do you reckon? I think so. I think you know if Kenny G is
5: listening here, that he should. Apparently, be he tunes in of religiously. Course. And can I be honest? I don't mind a little bit of Kenny G here and there. I think even the younger generation they are into Kenny G. Tom. Is this ta- true? Do you have statistical evidence? Of I this? don't have statistical evidence, but you know from the trends I've been observing, I think Kenny G could be definitely kind of a, a star for the younger generation. Wow! Watch
0: this space, everybody. Exactly, <laughs> um, Fernando. That was great fun. Thank you very much uh, for guiding us through the top of the musical tree in Colombia this week. Uh, Fernando's Global Countdown will be back.